the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations, commonly known as Victoria, BC, Canada. And I'm super excited to have Elaine Alec on the show today. I've wanted to have a conversation with Elaine for a long time. Elaine is the co-founder of Alder Hill, an Indigenous-owned and led company co-founded by our mutual dear friend, Jesse Hemphill. It's a company of leading experts in the area of Indigenous community planning. Elaine has led comprehensive community planning and engagement processes. She's been a political advisor. And recently, she's the best-selling author of Calling My Spirit Back. It's her memoir, which links a personal examination of her lived experience to a much broader overview of serious sociological concerns of national importance for people in Canada, for sure, but also beyond. And she includes tangible steps to address them. I also know that Elaine and her family share the same strong commitment to co-parenting and secure attachment in a blended family as I do, and I wanted to jam on that a bit. So a brief content warning here for discussion of cultural genocide and the legacy of Indigenous residential institutions in Canada, but I hope you'll stay put and enjoy and appreciate all that Elaine has to share with us today. So Elaine, what identities do you lead with? Um, I begin with introducing uh, who I am, which translates into standing by water. And I am a member of the Siyoch and Tihuat nations, which are the Okanagan and Shishwap nations from the southern interior of British Columbia. Thank you. Elaine, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I've wanted to have a conversation with you since I first got your book. It was in probably, if I didn't pre-order it, it was within the first month of your launch. So it's been a long time now, actually. But I'd like to begin our interview by acknowledging that since the publication of your book, uh, the remains of, well, at least 1,300 unmarked graves of uh Indigenous children have been discovered at residential schools, um, these institutions across Canada. And that includes 215 unmarked graves located at the Kamloops Residential School, where so many of your relatives and your community members were sent and taken and sent to as children. These atrocities are shocking, but they're not surprising. I know that having attended the Truth and Reconciliation Commission public hearings, that these have been talked about publicly um, for decades. So what can you tell us about how you are faring personally and also what your sense is of how are things within your community um, in, and especially as we consider what might be the next step in this phase of truth and maybe potentially reconciliation in this country? Yeah, I, when we first heard about it, um, we actually, my husband actually received a call before the announcement came out to um, help prepare the elders that he knew that this was happening. And so I remember sitting there 
when he told me, he hung up the phone and he told me, oh my gosh, it's getting me emotional just thinking about that moment. But I remember looking at him and just thinking about it. And I was like, I wish that I could be someone who just worked um, a casual job in a service industry position. Um, something that you didn't have to think about, something that you didn't have to feel so deeply about, like something that wasn't so emotional all the time. And just thought of how nice it would be to be just a regular Canadian without those attachments, you know. And then I thought of, well, <laughs> the, I, the, just no way, you know, I wasn't born, you know, for that purpose. But I just remember, like, it's just too much. It's just too much to process right now. Um, and and I remember, you know, we just cried. We just, he, it was just a, a moment. And when we checked in with our team, um, the next day, uh, I have a Indigenous planning firm that uh, I, I help lead with Jesse Hemphill. And we have a team of over 20 people, um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And we let each other know that it was okay for us to grieve. And it was okay for us to take time and process what was going on and gave everybody permission to take a week or two off to just grieve. And so we, we did that, but we also understood that life doesn't stop for other people. And so we wrote a letter to all of the governments um, that we were working with at the time, including all of our clients, and just wrote a letter and let them know that we needed to take time and that if there were deadlines that we had to meet within the next week or two, that they postponed them for us um, while we processed because we knew that working from a place of trauma and triggering and grief and anger was not going to allow us to bring our best selves forward and we didn't want that coming out in the work that we were doing and so we took a step back and uh, a lot of our non-indigenous employees kind of stepped in to make sure that things were running smoothly while we were all stepping aside to just take some time and it was um, surprising to me how deeply it impacted me um, and how sad and um, unable to function that I that that it was with me because I feel like I have endured a lot of loss and trauma and that I've been through a lot and um, have been taught a lot of beautiful tools for grieving and letting go um, but this just hit me so hard. And I just thought about all of the people um, that I knew that didn't have the same teachings and tools. Um, if it was impacting me this deeply, how it was impacting the people around me, but also impacting the people who had gone to those schools. And so, I mean, there's still that lingering experience. Um, that, you know, it's, you wonder how long people are going to care. Mm -hmm. you, un you wonder how long people are going to make um, 
bringing the truth forward and acknowledging the truth uh, as a priority. And when things like this happen in our communities, like big, big things are revealed or, or brought to the forefront when they're really traumatic. So many times our elders tell us that it's supposed to happen this way. And um, even though this is really hard and really dark, um, this will make us stronger. This will will make us stronger and we will be able to heal, you know, because if we're not dealing with these things and if we're not addressing it and acknowledging it, then how can we heal from it? Yeah. And so, you know, despite, you know, how difficult it's been, um, it's also provided a lot of opportunity for people to um, who haven't shared their stories in the past to be able to let some of that go. Um, and then hearing our elders, you know, hearing our elders who went there saying, you know, things like, that's what happened to my friend, mm -hmm. you know, like we kind of knew because they never came back. And when we got home, they weren't there. Mm -hmm. And so, and then, and then from that comes the anger that our elders were saying this for mm -hmm. so long and nobody believed them. And even now, after all of this, people are saying it's a mass grave um, and it was probably a pandemic. And mm -hmm. that's what happened when we've heard the stories that I never repeat, you know, because they were shared with me by the survivors in that moment. And but they're, they're traumatizing stories. They're stories you can never forget that people actually did this to children um, and that people, it, because I remember when I heard them when I was in my 20s, I questioned it because they were so extreme. Mm -hmm. And if this was happening, how could they get away with it? Mm -hmm. And so even me as a child and grandchild of survivors still questioning in, in the validity of the stories and now getting older and knowing that they're truth. You know, so I can see why people question it um, and just don't want to believe it. But as long as we continue to deny it, um, we can't we can't heal from it. We can't mm -hmm. reconcile from it until it's acknowledged appropriately. And so there's still when things come up like this, it's beautiful to see people standing up and doing something. But at the same time, you still you see the ignorance come up too with mm -hmm. it and see exactly how much work we still have to do. So it's always on our minds every day. Like it's, you know, for myself and the work that I do and my family and the work that we do um, every day, it's it comes up in our lives and it shows itself. And it's very much how we function day to day. It's not something we can just forget about and get on with our lives. Um, and it's not that we're unable to put it in the past, but it, it is an actual reflection of what we're dealing with today right now in Canada. And I think people don't understand that, that it, how it impacts us right now, like today and, and how it impacts everything that you see in our communities, as far as the alcoholism and the addictions and the overdose and the suicides um, and the health issues that mm -hmm. all come from that. So yeah, it's, it's still a lot, um, and I'm glad that people are still asking questions and wanting to have conversations about it. Mm -hmm. Well, and thank you very much. And it's you know it's very generous of you to disclose that even you, as a young person, 
couldn't believe it. And I still carry a lot of remorse um, for when my friend John Paul Jones told me as a first year university, you know, he was 40 in the School of Social Work, uh, you know, a, a very, he kind of stuck out like a sore thumb, not only because he was a 40 year old indigenous man in the School of Social Work, in a, you know, in the 90s, but also he was a very, very like large, robust man. And um, so his presence, and he was very hard of hearing. So he had a loud, booming voice. And you would think you could like never knock this guy off. He was always like so happy. And, and we had a conversation about what schools we went to. And he said, oh, I went to a private school too. And he was kind of joking, thinking probably that I knew about residential schools at 20. And I, and I hadn't. And we were talking about the island. And so I was like, oh, what school did you go to? And thinking, oh, I know all the private schools here. You know, where did you go? And when he told me about residential schools, I literally said, how, how could that have happened? And I've never heard about it. Like, how could there have been one in my town and me not know? And I didn't believe him. And he got so upset and, you know, caused a, a, a terrible rift in our relationship. He, he, you know, I wouldn't say forgave me, but we continued to be friends, but he died and I never got a chance to say like, oh my God, I'm so, so sorry for not believing you. And, you know, that's just something I'll carry is um, the people I've hurt by not believing them. So it's reassuring to hear from you that, that it, they, it are, it is just so horrifying that it's hard to believe that it could happen um, without there being more awareness, at least amongst settler culture. Um, but of course, now with some analysis, I know exactly why that is. Right? Mm -hmm. So your book, Calling My Spirit Back, is in many ways a snapshot of the legacy of residential schools in Canada, and not just the intergenerational trauma that uh, you've survived, and also, I should say, have pivoted in your own life in so many ways. But also, it's about the spirit of activism and transformative change. You mentioned men multiple stories about your dad and his involvement in the American Indian movement. And I love it when you post pictures on Instagram <laughs> with him. Um, and now your book, takes its place in the archive of healing stories and really empowering narratives that are going to inspire the current and next generations of um, Indigenous activism and uh, intersectional feminism. It's a big deal, Elaine. <laughs> it's like really, it's a, it's a culture shifting piece of work. How does that feel for you? Um. I read the question and I just, that was one of the questions where I was like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> maybe by the time we have this conversation, I'll have an answer. <laughs> I've had to do a lot of therapy to be accepting of where I am right now. Um, you know, in my book, I talk about all of the things I grew up hearing um, and all of the things that I truly believed, you know, that I was dirty, that I was ugly, that I was stupid, that I wasn't worthy, you know, all of those things that I, I you know, I was no good. Nobody wanted me. You know, I was abandoned. If somebody loved me enough, you know, I would be safe or I'd be taken care of. 
And so all of those things stuck with me and it took me a really long time to start overcoming those things to believe that I am deserving of love, that I am worthy, that I am beautiful, that I am smart, you know, that the things I know are valid and good um, just because I don't have a Western education doesn't mean that I am not smart and that I am not knowledgeable and that I am not gifted. And so um, doing that work helped me write the book. <laughs> um, you know, I really dug deep to write the book from a place of love um, and a place of passion. Um, but when I wrote the book and I, and I put the book out there and I started receiving the feedback about the book, um, and the requests and, you know, my calendar started going crazy and I didn't know how to say no and people wanted to talk to me and, and I was getting all of these love letters, like beautiful love letters from people who read my book. And I remember getting so much anxiety and always wanting to humanize myself by talking a lot about my defects, my character defects, like I'm human even just this morning, I screamed at the top of my lungs to my 11 year old daughter, like, because we had a blowout and things like that, where, you know, I, I, I need to let people know that I'm not that great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that patient, you know, I still struggle with all of these things. And my cousin said, you don't have to do that. You know, mm -hmm. you are very deserving of all of these things and this recognition and and so I really had to work through that, um, you know, because a big teaching in our communities and family is humility and to be humble. And can you practice humility and be humble in a space where you're constantly asked to talk about yourself um, mm -hmm. and acknowledge those things? And so I've done a lot of work around that every second Thursday at four o'clock I have a conversation even if it's a great week uh, you know I still even if I'm doing great that's my self-care but I think about you know um, I used to always look for validation from people I always wanted to live up to who my dad was um, because growing up I everybody told me how wonderful my dad was like what a warrior he was how fearless he was um, you know, my dad was an icon. Whenever I, you know, traveled British Columbia and I introduced myself as Kenzie Basil's daughter, people would come up to me and say, I knew your dad and would tell me all about him. And I remember one of the women who knew him. She's one of my elders and mentors. She came up to me and she said, you know, your dad was a warrior. Your dad was like, was a war chief. And he did things in a very different way. And she said, you are doing exactly what your dad was doing, but from that place of love. And so even though your work is very, the approach is very different, it's still the same. You're still mm -hmm. fighting for the same reasons and still the same purpose. And I think about advocacy in our communities and, and I think about a lot of the like infighting that happens in advocacy, you know, People do things a certain way. There's frontline people and then there's the relationship people. You know, there's the teachers and then there's the spiritual people. Uh, there's the people who want to change policy and, and go directly into the system that's harming us because they want to make change from within. 
And all of those things are so important to do. And through our teachings, we were told that that none is better than the other, that that they all have meaning. And so I quit comparing myself to my dad and the way he did things and knew that I could still do the same work he was doing from a place of love in a different way and know that it was just as impactful on our people as what he did. And so um, I... I wrote this book originally as a resource for planners and facilitators. And I thought that maybe I would get it in through my connections of people who were in the planning and university realm. Um, I didn't expect it to go worldwide. I didn't expect people from all over the world to want the book and read the book and connect with the book. And, and I've had people from all walks of life connect with me, like uh, mostly women between the ages of, of 25 and 45. But I've also had very privileged white men uh, reach out to me and tell me how they've connected with the book mm. and how because they connected with the book, they were able to be more open to some of the more difficult pieces. And I think that is like the biggest impact I think that I want to leave is to continue teaching as many people as I can about cultivating safe spaces and the magic that can happen when people feel safe mm -hmm. um, and, and work from that space. But it is, it's been really over, it's been an overwhelming journey. And there've been moments where I just wanna not, you know, be, out there and putting myself out there and shut down all my social media. And I've had many of my friends in the similar position actually do that. Like it's too much for me. I need to shut it all down. Um, but I think it's like, we deserve to be in this space, like indigenous people, indigenous, especially indigenous women, we deserve to be in this space. We deserve to occupy spaces that we've never occupied before. We deserve the recognition for what we have to offer the world. And um, I truly believe that every time I push myself past my anxiety to occupy those spaces, it will help make it easier for an other Indigenous women to mm. occupy the same space as well. Yes. And what do you think your dad would say about the book? What would he say to you after reading it? Oh, I don't even know. I, <laughs> I thought about when I, when I took the internship with an Indigenous youth internship program with the provincial government, and I went and we had to, like, go to the parliament buildings and, you know, all of this stuff and just all of the things I had to be a part of because of that, I was like, my dad's rolling over in his grave. <laughs> my dad is like, so what the hell are you doing? <laughs> but, um, but I think like my dad was always proud of me. I think my dad always knew that I was a writer and that he saw something in me because when I talked to my other siblings and I said, did dad ever write you poetry? Did dad ever like, write you letters like this and all of them even my older siblings said no mm. and so I feel like my dad knew that I was a writer and that he knew that this was my gift and I think that you know he would be so so proud of me and I also you know he would probably want me to capture his story even more like I wish 
you know, one of the things I want to do is really sit down with my uncle um, mm -hmm. and talk to him more about my dad and try to capture more of his journey and what that was like. Mm. It, I imagine it being very cinematic. <laughs> yeah. It, it, the book really is so fantastic. Um, your writing voice is like having a best friend who, um, you know, I grew up in a household where nobody ever talked about feminism. In fact, I, you know, if anything, there was probably like jokes about bra burners or something like that, you know, and yet I definitely see all of the women in my lineage as um, kind of against the grain uh, you know, and, and pretty fiery resistors to patriarchy and, and, and those norms. And I, there are excellent passages in your book where you do just explain, like, here's what patriarchy is without all the jargon and stripped of the academia. And like, here's what it looks like, um, in everyday life. So I really appreciate how comfortable it, and, and how safe the space was even within the pages to explore these things and, and not so heady, you know? Um, so how did the rest of your family respond after reading this book, you know? And, and yeah, I'm sure there were aunties and uncles and, and also friends. It, obviously this was an important book for you to write. I'd, I'd love for you to share. Why was it important for you to write and how did others respond? Um, well, my whole family knew my whole goal was to be a writer since I was a kid. My whole family knew that. And I, my mom didn't want me to be a writer because she didn't want me to be a starving artist. She didn't want me to struggle. She knew many writers in her life who struggled and a lot of artists in our family who struggled. She did not want me to financially struggle because she didn't want me to end up relying on a man to take care of me and end up being in an abusive and controlled relationship. And so she was really big on making sure I knew how to make money and take care of myself. And I talk about it a little bit in my posts that my mom was an entrepreneur, but she had no confidence. And so she couldn't fulfill that because her brain, when I think about the way she talked to me and the ideas she shared with me, she was an entrepreneur. If she would have had the confidence, she would have been a successful woman. Um, but she didn't have that confidence. And so she wanted to be a writer as well. She wanted to write a book. She used to always write letters to the editor and she would write letters in our local newsletter. And my mom was one of those people who said things out loud that nobody else wanted to say. She was just like, let's stop beating around the bush and let's talk about this. And I believe she really learned a lot of that from Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, there's a teaching and you know there's there's the phrase rigorous honesty you know as long as you can be successful in your sobriety as long as you commit to rigorous honesty and so you know as long as you can do that then you can overcome this and so my mom had this rigorous honesty and I grew up in those meetings with her um, and I heard rigorous honesty from all of these adults that I knew and respected and couldn't believe they were saying the things that they were saying out loud and in front of other people. And so I grew up with that honesty that, you know, it was normal. It was normalized for me in that, in that world. And so when I got older, I didn't think my life was bad. I didn't think there was trauma. I didn't think, you know, 
everything that happened to me was what was happening to everybody else. Like I had no reason to complain. I had a mom I was taken care of. There was food, you know, it was, I just didn't think of my life as that bad. And um, I think a lot of us are like that, you know, you just get through it. You don't want to cry around about it and you're told not to (laughs) don't cry (laughs) around about it. Stop living in the past, like suck it up and move (laughs) on. And, but when I was, in my early 20s, I was asked to do a talk um, at a woman's health conference. And it's the first time I'd asked to speak for an hour. It was my first hour long keynote. And I was like, I can't talk for an hour. Maybe I'll try to write and see what comes out. And it ended up being this my life story. And I put so much things on that piece of paper that I didn't realize were impacting me. It was the first time I saw it. And I was like, oh, I cannot share this story unless I tell my mom and my uncle and my sister. Mm. And so uh, we met as a family and I read out what I wrote and they all started crying. And my mom was nodding her head because this was after she'd had her stroke. So she couldn't talk, but she was nodding her head. Yes. Like, yes. Like, and she was crying and, and my uncle was like, you know, you got to do a little girl. I'm so proud of you. And, you know, I'm 44 and my uncle Louis still messages me. Hey, little girl, how are you doing? How's my little girl doing? And like, cause for, for him, all of us are his kids. Like it doesn't matter how old we are, but, and so they gave me permission and that was all that I needed was their permission. And um, so I, I just wrote the book as it was. And like I said, really did my best to write from a place of love and um, and sent drafts out to everybody. And the people where I mentioned their names, um, where I talked more about them, I sent them pieces of the writing and said, am I allowed to use your name? Because um, mm-hmm. if not, I won't. And then um, the one piece where I talked about my sexual assault with the individual, um, the first draft was... Um, that part, you know, I, I was really careful that I made it about me and my journey and mm-hmm. I didn't want to make it about him. And um, when we did, you know, our mediation, I let him know that I'm going to share my story. So I'm going to share my story about this. Um, and then the other piece I had a hard time writing was the when I talked about the Assembly of First Nations election with the national chief um, elections. And the very first few drafts I wrote of the political arena were very angry. And mm-hmm. I said a lot of things that could have been very damaging. Um, and so I edited, edited, edited. Why do I need to say this? Why do I have to say this? Like, why do I have to? It's, it, it, I didn't want the book to become about that or a controversy or about something else. And so, the process helped me get that out there um, because I knew if I wrote from that place, my book wouldn't have been received as well. Um, mm. I believe that people would have been really turned off by, by the way that I wrote it. So I was very intentional about writing from that place of love, really mm. asking myself, why am I sharing this story? Like, is this going to help somebody um, or is it going to hurt somebody? And mm. so I really did that. And I feel like people felt that I've had feedback from people saying I could tell, right, like that I could tell that it was written from that place of love. And so 
even people in my community read it that didn't know my whole story and have changed the way they interact with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I, I get asked a lot, like, were people angry at you or upset or did they worry about you, you know, talking about your community, like in that way. And um, I think a lot of it, like a lot of it has to do with my community our leader for the longest time was Grand Chief Stuart Phillip. Mm-hmm. And he is the president of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, but he was our chief, our community chief for many years. And he always put the emphasis on healing and love, always. And he always was willing to have hard conversations. And whenever it got hard, he knew it had to be talked about and he knew that it had to healing he never worried about economic development he never mm-hmm. worried about business or making money because he knew the that we needed to build our community on a foundation of healing mm-hmm. and so a lot of the things that I talk about are things that he also talked about and acknowledged and you know where we've had those really hard conversations in our community um, that's the one thing I'm really proud of about my community the Penticton Indian Band is that you know, even though we're like every other community that has their issues, um, we've had really hard conversations. We've gone through really tough stuff and we still are willing to work through things. People are still open to speaking their heart and sharing who they are and what their strengths are. Um, and when things are difficult, they know how to support each other, even if like last week they didn't like you. <laughs> so, you know, even though like I have my own issues about feeling loved and wanted by my own community, um, I know it's my stuff. And mm-hmm. the experience I've had from my community is they're very proud of me. Um, so many people reached out to me and let me know, like our current chief, Greg Gabriel, is always letting me know how proud he is of me. And so, um, you know, I never felt that fear about, is someone going to be mad at me? <laughs> right, right. So, um, you know, that was what I would have thought 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but I really trusted that I prayed really hard and I was very intentional and I set a space for myself that was almost ceremonial as I wrote it. And so, um, and I know like my mom always said, as long as you do things from that place, it will always be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so though you never do name the perpetrator um, of your sexual assault um, by that high ranking man and, and you never shame them in any way, obviously there are those in your community who, who know who it is. Obviously he knows, has probably read your book, wanted to know <laughs> what you said. So it's sort of a, a gentle, but still semi-public call out. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, do you see shame as an effective tool in some cases for curbing power abuses or harmful behaviors? Or is that just like a no-go for you? It used to be a tool that I utilized because it was a tool utilized against me. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom used shame-based tactics to try to get me sober and to try mm-hmm. to behave. And what it did was push me away more. And I put myself in worse positions because I didn't trust my mom. 
because I knew if I trusted her and came forward and said things that she didn't want to hear, um, she would not be loving, she would be shaming. And um, I just remember feeling shame so much. And I feel like it made, you know, I, because I didn't feel safe, I continued to go to the people, you know, who were hurting me more, you know, because <laughs> they weren't, they weren't shaming me at least, you know, and right. so, and then, you know, one of the things I learned about colonial tools is that shame shame and a lot of shame-based teachings from residential school and from the church like all of those things are shame to control people and to put fear into people to control them and to have that power and when I think about our systems and my grandmother and the elders who were really beautiful teachers in my life they were never like that you know, the beautiful elders that I knew that hadn't been deeply impacted by residential school, they were all about that love and that understanding and you need to learn. And if you make a mistake, that's okay. Mm. But residential school taught if you make a mistake, you're punished. And so you were punished harshly and hurt and sometimes killed um, mm -hmm. because of those things. And I think what happened was our elders who experienced that, our parents and grandparents who experienced that had fear. And my husband always says, we all know that no good decisions are ever made from a place of fear. But our grandparents and our parents had fear that if we did these things, we would be hurt really badly. And so in order for our children and our grandchildren to not be hurt so badly, we will, use, we will shame them into not doing those things. And that's something I had to overcome through my teachings and navigating like a decolonized process to even my own cultural upbringing is which parts belong to us and which parts were imposed by the church. And mm. so really learning that shame has no place in our communities. Like I hear we have shame ceremonies, you know, in some of our communities, but when I hear the description of them, I think shame is the wrong word. I think they're like the English word is it's not I don't it's an accountability you know it's based in love like when I hear like it's about people sharing their experience and their story and then the community and the family is coming to support those people and to recommit to living a better life or to you know whatever that looks like and so when I think about when people listen the most when people absorb and learn the most when people are willing to be open to change it's not when they're being shamed because when they're being shamed they're shutting down they don't care they're like they totally stop listening to you so when you're shaming and being angry and and making people feel small and little they're living you're you're forcing them into the trauma part of their brain where they can't they can't retain anything you tell them and when you work from that place of love and you work from that place of validation um, and you open up that space for safety, people move into that part of their brain where they're more accepting, where they're more open, where they're actually registering what you're telling them and what you're sharing with them. And so, you know, I told this person that I was doing this because I loved them enough. Like, and it, when I said those words to him, he cried. Mm. And 
because everybody else, he'd been doing this for a long time. He had a, you know, a long, long history of this reputation and everybody shamed him and everybody pointed fingers and whispered about him behind his back. And, you know, everybody knew about him. I thought Mm -hmm. I was safe because of who my mentor was. I thought Mm -hmm. because of Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, nobody would ever touch me because of our relationship. But when that happened, um, I knew, you know, I had to really dig deep and pray and, and do ceremony and think about my mom and my grandma and, and the things that, that felt right to me. And it was hard because so many people were telling me to do things differently. Mm-hmm. People were like, you need to be the one to hold him accountable. You need to like say something and you need to like put his name in the newspaper. And I had reporters, like people said things to reporters who called me, who threatened to release his name in, in a national newspaper mm-hmm. and said, if you don't, say anything I am either going to put your name in this article or his name and threatened me a reporter threatened me and I I threatened him back and explained to him that he was victimizing me again that it was not it was my story to tell and my way to deal with it and so I really that whole experience learned like I learned how to stand up for myself and I learned how to like speak my truth and do what was good for me and not what other people thought I should do. And that was really hard. Um, And even now somebody tried to call me out on my own social media that, you know, stop protecting him. You're enabling him because you're not saying his name um, and he needs to be accountable. And I said, he was accountable. He was accountable to me. And it's not my job to make him accountable to anybody else. That is not my purpose. Um, That is not my purpose to be that savior. Um, I really had to dig deep to learn that because when it happened, I went to people that I wanted to save me. (laughs) I, I told them what happened and I wanted them. I wanted them to go to him and put him in his place. I wanted them to do something to make it better. I wanted them to do something or say something to make me feel better because I was so broken at the time and they didn't. And they were like, you need to do this for yourself. And sometimes in very harsh ways. Um, but I, I had to reach within myself and do it for myself. And what I learned was that they they knew no one could do the work but me. They knew Mm -hmm. that no one could, I, if they would have done that, I would have, there would have been no way for me to take my own power back. Mm -hmm. You know, I would have still been a victim Mm -hmm. if somebody else had done the work for me. And I realized that it was hard, (laughs) you know, healing and these things are really hard work. They're uncomfortable. You feel like you're going to break, you're going to go crazy. Like you can't handle it. That, you're not able to do it. It's just too much. But when you push yourself through that fear and face it anyway, that's that moment you reclaim your power. And that's the moment that my life changed forever. In that moment, my life changed forever um, and made me who I am today. And so even though it was one of the hardest experiences of my life, it I, in that moment, took back the power that had been taken from me when I was four. Mm -hmm. Um, 
as a as a woman, as a 36 year old woman, I was able to do that. And so I can't do that for other women. Mm-hmm. I can't make him accountable or get their power back for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they will find ways that is good for them, that is right for them. It could be the way I did it. It could be through legal routes. It could be through their own ceremony, their own healing process. They don't even have to face the person. It's up to the individual to do it in that way. And so there would have been, you know, what I experienced in that moment was a shift in an understanding. Um, You know, and even though I think maybe now he has convinced himself that he didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm going to continue to tell my story to say that it is how it happened. I am validated in my experience. It did impact me the way it was. And I'm going to continue to share it so that people will see that, you know, there are ways for people to do the work on their own that, you know, and, and to, and to do what they need to do to, to, work through that but I'm I I don't use shame anymore I used it for a majority of my life when I was angry when I was uh, practicing you know my alcoholism when I was codependent when I you know was not happy with myself when I Mm -hmm. felt so much shame for myself Um, I utilized those tactics on my own family, you know, my sisters, my partners, you know, the people in my life. I was very, I spoke from that place and people didn't respond to me in respectful (laughs) ways, right? Like Mm -hmm. people don't respect people who are constantly shaming them. And so, um, you know, I don't, I don't use those tactics anymore. I've learned that those came from my own dysfunction. And I really have to ask myself, like, why when I feel these feelings inside, and when I'm angry at somebody, or, you know, if somebody's triggered me or set me off, I've learned to be really accountable to my own feelings, that Mm. I've really learned that no one can make me feel anyway. Um, And the moment I feel anger, the moment I feel pain, the moment I feel any of those things, I have to ask myself why. Um, even if the person was a complete jerk, even <laughs> if they were a certain way, um, I I have the power to let it go, and and so I I just I've just lived my life with it. I've seen my families and my communities and my nations still use the, a colonial tactic of shame on each other, and it doesn't get us anywhere. And so yeah, I personally refuse to use shame as a way to to heal Mm -hmm. well and you've provided such a great model for others of another way of doing it and detailed it really beautifully in your book I've heard you speak about co-parenting and raising your kids as part of a team and you've talked today about not using colonial tactics not using shame Um, not only coming from a place of love, but also self-love, you know, like you can have a blowout with your kid and not go into a shame spiral over it. Um, 
there's so many things that you're holding though as well. You're also, as you said, the co-founder of a very busy, very successful, well-known um, indigenous community planning consultancy. You've also now added best-selling author to the mix. Um, you're very open about your ongoing process of sobriety and healing from trauma. And it's a lot to balance, especially because you know, you've said a few times, like, this is my purpose. This is not my purpose. You you clearly have a, a, a spiritual, a well-developed spiritual yearning and sense of your own purpose that is balancing your own needs, but also the collective well-being. So this is this is partially a question about being like an ambitious person who has a lot to accomplish in this life. And 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 kind of the typical, how do you balance career and family? But beyond that, it's like also a question of how do you personally know when your soul is calling you towards some ancestral obligation to like a collective healing and liberation, but you're like tired. You're like, you know, like I, it's not just about being ambitious. It's like sometimes, how do you discern when you have a need to make a change or speak up or have rest, make a boundary versus, but the collective needs me right now. Or like, you know, the, the greater good is, is asking for me to do something. Um, how do you discern and balance what your priority is going to be in that moment? That's the questions. Those, that's, those are the questions I've been working through the past year. Um, like I said, I, I see a counselor every two weeks. And that was the biggest thing because coming into the work, um, I had those teachings of, you know, don't be lazy, you know, work hard, don't sleep in, don't like all of these really deeply ingrained teachings from my grandmother and my uncles and my mom. If you don't sleep too long or your skin's going to be bad, you know, they had all these really weird ways of like, <laughs> of like convincing me that you're not supposed to do that. Um, and so I was always a hard worker. Um, and I really, I really, I think, got that from my mom and my uncles and my, my grandma. They, I was just a hard worker. Um, and, and then growing up around leadership my entire life especially with the type of leadership I grew up with, like they're, they are like the sacrificing leadership. They are the 24 hour leadership that show up and like, you know, that's their spirit. They can do that. That's their calling um, because their body keeps up with them, right? Like their body approves of what they're doing a lot of times. Um, what I've learned is to one, listen to my body if I'm sick or feeling ill, my body is not approving of where I'm at and what I'm doing. Mm. Um, and the work that I've learned to do was I don't want to not show up because I don't want people to think I'm that type of person, the person that doesn't show up or the person who thinks that they're too good or the person that you know, is too busy. I don't want to be the two. I'm not, I, one of my biggest pet peeves was people, I know you're really busy or you're so busy, but can I, like, I, because I don't want people to be like that around me. I don't want people to think that I'm too busy for the important people in my life. 
and that really, I don't want to be that person. And my counselor would always ask me, well, what's that person? Like, what, who are you talking about when you say that person? And, and so just, you know, the, the type of person I was told not to be, <laughs> you know, to always, you know, you don't just represent yourself, you represent your family, you represent your people, you represent your community, you represent your nation. And so you are a part of this family, you are a Penticton Indian Band member, and you are a Silk Nation member, you belong to the Okanagan Nation, you belong to the Shushwap, the Sequatmut Nation. And so it was always this teaching because of leadership in my family and who they were, that we belong to the people, you know, that our service and our work is for the people and our work is for the future generations. And this is the life you're born into. This is the life you asked for before you came to this world as a spirit. You were put here for this purpose. And I always felt that. And so I always thought that work was um, political because that's what was around me. And I really had to learn that that's not my space. That space makes me ill. And my space is the spiritual space. Like my space is this space. And one of the questions I was asked lately was, how do you take care of the helpers? How do we help the helpers? And, you know, how do we do self-care for the helpers? What can we offer for our helpers so that they can continue to help? And my answer was, a hard one. I, I didn't want to say it. <laughs> no one can help our helpers, but our helpers. Mm. No one can help me. No one can heal me. No one can save me. No one can take care of me. I am the only one that can do it myself. And if I am burned out, if I am sick, if I am triggered, if I am, it's because I have put myself in that position because I don't have the appropriate boundaries in place. And so many of our people are told you have to show up, you know, um, and, and that, you know, we have to put, put ourselves last. But our teachings also talk about the importance of the individual at the center of all of the things, the family, the community, the land. If our land isn't healthy, it's because our people aren't healthy. If our people aren't healthy, our land isn't healthy. And it all starts with the individual. And so the individual really needs to focus on healing and helping self first. Because when you do that, then you can heal and help your family, your community and the land. But if you're only focusing on your family, community and the land and not the center, which is yourself, then you're not doing service. You're not mm -hmm. doing service to the people that you're helping. And that's hard because it's deeply, like I've said, two hours a month, I go deep inside to, to make sure that I'm okay for my children, you know, to make sure I'm, the, I'm around for a really long time. And so I really had to dig deep to figure out how to get past those teachings that were ingrained in me to be of service, to put myself mm. last, to sacrifice, to be a martyr, mm. you know, and that doesn't do us any good. When you look at the amount of illness in our communities and in indigenous communities, especially chronic disease and rheumatoid arthritis, um, those are diseases of feeling put upon. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is what we're doing to like, it's, there's a reason for it, of course, there's like the legacy of what's been done to us. 
-hmm. but we're now in a space where we have to be like, okay, I need to do this for myself. And so what I've learned, my tool is to ask myself, what is important to me? And I have to answer that question without thinking about, well, what is my husband going to think about it? What are my kids going to think about it? What is my business partner going to think about it? But can I answer what is important to me in this moment? And can I answer that for myself first? And then put that out there. And um, I've learned a really important tool from my husband. Um, when we talk about balance, people say, how do you balance it all? And I say, I don't. <laughs> my, I, you know, my husband is a, you know, he was an elite athlete and, you know, ran marathons. And, you know, he told me, he's like, you'll never have balance. And I remember like wanting to challenge him and get mad at him. He's like, you want to be a perfect mom. You want to be the perfect businesswoman and you want to be in perfect shape. <laughs> and he said, you can't be all of those things. And I remember being so like, yes, I can. I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to kill myself <laughs> to prove to you that, that you're wrong. But he was like, just think about it. Mm. When have you had all of those things and been perfect at all of them? And I was like, you're right. And he said, you, what you have to understand is the acceptance of what you choose. Mm. And so if you choose to be a perfect businesswoman, you're going to have to accept you're not going to be the best mom. You know, you're not going to be the perfect mom and you are probably not going to be in the best shape <laughs> because <laughs> all of your work is, do, is going to work. If you choose to be the perfect mom, your business is probably going to suffer, you know, because that's, that's that your energy is someplace else. And so I started laughing because I was like, maybe even balance of the medicine wheel is, is a little colonial. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> right. It makes us think we have to like, be like always Folk, like we're never good enough. And that's what colonialism teaches us. Colonialism teaches us we're never going to be good enough. Mm. And so when I think about that, like when I'm, I have to look at what I'm doing and make a decision as a, as a woman, as a mom, as a wife, as a business owner, as an author, what am I going to focus on now and be okay with lacking in other spaces and that, when that happens, if I get grumpy and I think people are thinking badly of me, like, oh, my husband probably thinks I'm slacking off or he probably, <laughs> my kids probably, you know, that's not theirs, it's mine. Right. And, and so being okay, like, I'm going to have to work through my own self-talk about being a good mom or being a good business person or being, you know, somebody who can show up. And that if I don't follow through, I have to work through that. Right. I, it's my, it's just an acceptance of where I'm at. And once I've been like, I don't know if it's age, you know, I feel like the forties are like that magic number, like that I always wished for. I could not wait to be old enough to not care. I could yeah. not wait to be old enough to not give a damn like the women I grew up with. Right. And mm -hmm. I feel it coming and it feels so free. It feels so good to, to be able to make decisions based on what's good for me and to not feel bad or guilty about not being able to be in other spaces and that this is good for me. And now that I've focused on that, my life has like 
been thriving. Like there's there the struggle that I had before wasn't there. And so I focused on myself. I focused on myself and nobody else first, which is really hard, especially for women and moms to do. But I've done that and it is impacting my family in a beautiful way. I'm I am showing up to be a better mom because I'm not grumpy and 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 snappy and you know, I'm I'm in a much better place. I can be a better mother. I have more energy. I can like show up and do things. I, you know, our business is thriving because we're role modeling that for each other and for the people we work with. And so we're attracting people in our life that have that want to build that reciprocity with us and do work in the same way. And, you know, it's just even financially thriving in a way that I never thought was possible for me, like never, ever growing up in complete poverty on the res, you know, with no education, you know, to be where I'm at now is like, was unimaginable for me for so long. And, you know, it's because I've been able to focus on self. And, and I think, you know, people think it's selfish to do that. But the actual magic that happens when you can do that, um, it's, you have to be willing to let go of all of those other like self-defeating tapes in your head that tell you you're being selfish, you're being this, you're being that. And when you get past that, what actually happens, like those teachings actually show themselves to us that yes, you focus on you, you heal yourself, you love yourself, you trust yourself, you have confidence in yourself, you do that. And the universe will provide that to you in all of the aspects of your life. And so I don't have balance. I just have learned to love myself even when I've sucked in other places. <laughs> I love that. I, I also love, you know, that idea that maybe the medicine wheel has gotten a little static. It's like, oh, wait, right. When it's, when it's an oral tradition, it's a wheel and it's easier to show that it's like the wheel spins. Sometimes you're up on top of things and other times you're like falling down. Sometimes you're getting crushed under the weight of the wheel and other times you're on the ascendancy, but the colonial tendency to want to take snapshots and take pictures and like make things static and controllable. We forget, Oh, right. It's a wheel. <laughs> it's like in movement all the time. And sometimes it's good. And sometimes it's not so good. So, Okay. Oh, this has been a conversation of great substance. I, I, I will say it though. I still, I still feel a little petty about the girls that teased you in school. <laughs> like, I know we're not using shame. Does it, but can I ask you for real? Like, does this feel satisfying in some kind of way? Did they come up to you at, at events and be, and like, act like they don't remember. I just, I feel like I want to know what happened to the bullies. Cause I'm still bitter. Um, they, you know, what's funny is that they've, some of them pretend, I don't know if they're pretending that they don't realize it was them okay. or they've completely forgotten because of what was going on with them. The girls on the reserve at least. Um, but I also know that during one conversation with one of them, they actually, they had a conversation about me a few years ago. Like, remember what we used to do to Elaine? And they talked about it. So even as grown women, they were still talking about it. So I, you know, just some people are just never going to be okay, I guess. 
and and I really have to think about what was happening to me is what happened to the rest of them. And so um I guess so. God Elaine, you're so good. I just it's my mom and my grandma, like really, like my mom and my grandma just put that into me every single time. Like that somebody asked me about patience and it's just like, you know, I had an amazing mom and an amazing grandma and amazing uncles like some people didn't have that you know my family decided to get sober and deal with their crap and some of those people are still struggling with their own addictions and alcoholism and and self-love um and so they're in that place and and i it doesn't it doesn't haunt me like it used to it doesn't mm-hmm. consume me the way it used to um and even today sometimes i still feel very bullied and scared to go into spaces um mm. and it's it's i think it's normal sometimes and and that you know not everybody loves me <laughs> and, and right. you know to some people somebody said it the best to me they were like you could be the biggest juiciest best tasting peach of the bunch and there's still going to be somebody that doesn't like peaches and so so I'm like okay that's just and I have to be okay with that also you know there's so many things I did when I was drinking and so much harmful things that I did to people um, and some of it I don't even remember and so I've also said I've asked for forgiveness, but I have to be okay with people who aren't going to forgive me because of their experience with me. And I have to be okay with that and realize like why I was the way I was and how hurting I was at the time. Like I was horrible. Like I didn't even talk about half the things that I did in my book. Um, I don't know if if the cops can come get me later. (laughs) There were some pretty bad things that I've done in my life, but I know, like, looking back, that, like, the angry, lost, sad girl that I was, right? And so I think about that, like, why it's so much, so why it's so easy for me I guess to to forgive and let go and be okay and then um yeah there was one of the girls in school who reached out to me on social media and said uh, like right out on my social media um and some of my friends from elementary school are friends on my social media she ended up saying remember when you stabbed me with a pencil in grade one and that was it and then immediately my girlfriends from school messaged me and were like, what did she do? <laughs> yeah, you're like, why did I stab you? But so that's what I remember. Okay, so, okay, well then let's be real. You've you've done all this therapy. It's, again, you're like an incredible model. And I appreciate what you said about, like, yeah, I feel the same too. Like, I'm, believe me, people let me know when they are not enjoying the Carmen Spaniola experience. And like, I am not everybody's cup of tea. And I've been a real dick and very arrogant. And, you know, I, and I would want the opportunity to um, apologize. Um, and at the same time, sometimes I'm like, oh, you need to get on next week's dance card for feedback. I'm <laughs> at my upper limit for how much feedback I can take this week. Um, however, I I would love to know if you're willing to share what what's the tough lesson you're learning right now in your own healing process? What What's happening in therapy lately? 
Um, my biggest breakthrough was the what is important to me. Um, that was the biggest thing. And since then, my last three sessions have been have been good, where it's just been check ins. And one of the things that I um, one of the things that I struggle with are uh, poverty mentality and constantly feeling like I need to be on and people pleasing. And so, you know, I think about like the biggest issue for me um, that I work through is probably, and I always hesitate. One, my daughter, um, my daughter is 11 and I don't want to share too much about her mental health, um, but she, and, and she talks about it a little bit, but she struggles with anxiety and she's, she struggled with bullying and racism already at her young age. Um, and a lot of that anger is coming out. Um, and she's also going through puberty. <laughs> and so there's this combination right now where I'm like trying to be that loving, patient mother where I'm like holding her and saying, what do you need? What do you need from me? And being that mom. Um, and then there's just like the unreasonable preteen that I'm dealing with where it ends up where I'm screaming at the top of my lungs and saying, you know what, I'm just fed up right now. And, you know, every I'm tired of coddling you and I'm tired of like, this is just this is it like I'm done like, and then she cried and said, I'm scared, I'm sorry, and then apologized. But it wasn't until I hit that like raging point from like, I will throw you out this window. <laughs> <laughs> I know that one. Mm -hmm. But I think like, that's the piece I get, like, I, that's the piece I beat myself up about when people are like, um, I just, I, I only got to this place, I feel like in the last two years, like, or even when I, because yeah, when I wrote my book, and I went through my stuff, and I started talking to a counselor then, and I started dealing with a trauma therapist then, and I started doing a lot of my own ceremony then. It was like all of these things I was doing to work through this process. Um, and the biggest piece that I think a lot, why people can't get to that place of forgiveness or patience or whatever, that, that non-judgmental piece is, this is my life, you know, every day, I'm talking about cultivating safe spaces and hosting sessions. I'm I've had a I've had the blessing to have a crash course in healing myself because it's my day-to-day -day life, it's my day-to-day -day conversation and I have talked to like thousands of people over the last year about mental health and their stories and I've talked to rich white men and I've talked to like people in other countries who are really well off and, 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 you know, look very put together. And I've dealt with people in communities who are struggling and in poverty and still in active addictions and everybody in between. And I've found that every single person, every single person has a story and it doesn't matter what race you are, what social status you hold or how you present yourself, every single person has a story. And every time I come up with a judgment or an assumption about somebody that shows up on my screen, I am so immediately humbled by that judgment or presumption. 
And it's happened to me a few times in the last year and a half, especially with COVID. And so I get to meet these people and they pour their knowledge into me. And so I also get to hear thousands of people, the story, what I ask people in my circles every single time is what is on my heart. And I have been able to hear perspectives and people's hearts from all over the world. Um, and they put that into me. And so, you know, one of the things our elders say is that when you have an open heart and an open mind, that's when you gain wisdom. And so I get to practice on a daily basis, listening deeply with discipline to these people say what's on their heart. And so every time I'm done a session listening to 25 people, like what they've just contributed to me in my spirit and how I can show up and be more empathetic and be more loving and be more accepting of people because that's my, that's my job. It's like the best job ever that I get to do this every, almost every day from people from all over. Like I work with governments and lawyers and negotiators and even like ministers and like all of these different people. And it's just such humbling work. And I think if people had the opportunity to just listen in that way to different people from different backgrounds and doing their best to practice non-judgment, to meditate when they listen, to just listen to the information, what it, like how it would change humans. Um, because all of these people, everything I know and everything I share, I always say it's not me. <laughs> I'm not this like this genius spiritual guru, you know, that's that's found all this peace and stuff. It's, it's because people have shared that with me. They've poured that into me. Everything I share, everything I've come to learn is because of those stories and those people. And so people don't have the opportunity. And I've had that, you know, I've been doing circle work for, you know, about 10 years now. And it's been like a lot since COVID because you can talk to more people in such a short amount of time. It's like I've had this total crash course in and learning and hearing. And so it's, I, I do, sometimes it's sickening how much I, you know, I'll get those moments where I'll feel that judgment or I'll feel like that, but it doesn't take long before I'm completely humbled. And it's like that slap on the wrist where it's <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to do my best to not do that again, because I don't know what I don't know. And right. I think when you're forced in those situations, like not, I'm not forced, but when you're exposed to that so much, it's so much easier. And so, you know, I think if everybody did that and had the opportunity to do that in their life, they would have the same kind of love and acceptance as, as I've been able to generate over this last two years. Well, and for folks who don't have that opportunity, you write really beautifully about how to listen with discipline in the book. You share a lot of the teachings of your elders, and that's very useful for folks who aren't able to sit in circle. It's like you're there. I want to ask you the last question in a slightly different way. So, Elaine, how do you soothe yourself when you're in grief and when you're in rage? Oh, it's been a long time since I felt rage because I was a very rageful person in my early years. So what I learned was my rage wasn't actually rage. It was pain and it was sadness. And um, my body, st I still don't process feelings 
I'm going to say this as a normal person, like I don't pro, I don't feel right away. I don't, and when it does, it surprises the heck out of me. Like when tears just come and it's like outpouring of crying, it's like, I'm like, whoa, my body knew what to do in this moment because usually my body does not know what to do in those moments because what it manifested as before was anxiety. When I had anxiety, my body was responding to a feeling, but because I was taught to stuff my feelings, I didn't know what was happening. And so it was anxiety. And what I've learned was that the anxiety is, is wanting to cry. And so when I start feeling anxiety, when I feel my body reacting a certain way and I can't breathe properly, I say out loud, I think I need to cry. And, and then my family laughs because I say, I think, I don't feel, <laughs> I think I need to cry. And sometime in the next 24 hours, I'm probably going to have to have a big cry and it just comes and it works itself up. And I, and in those moments, I have to like, be like, okay, just, there's no, there's no good place to do this. <laughs> just like trust my body and just like, don't think about who's around. Don't just like talking to my body to be like, okay, you're okay. Like if you just cry the way you need to. And so I saw a lot of like work for myself to like grieve and feel and be angry. Um, my anger doesn't, it, my anger doesn't stay. Like as soon as I feel anger, I know it's hurt. I know it's not because someone made me angry. It's because someone hurt me. And where does that hurt come from? And so because I'm a, you know, I'm a processor. I don't feel things right away, you know, I, and when I do, I have to think about it. And so um, I'm learning the things that bring me comfort. Um, and, you know, I like to be at home. I comfort myself by cleaning. Um, I think I have, <laughs> I've, I, I, I've always been told people think I have OCD and then I read more about OCD and learning that organizing OCD is a trauma response, like an anxiety response that um, it's like to make yourself feel better. And I notice that if I'm on a really tough call or, or I'm triggered, I'll jump up and I'll start cleaning and organizing. And mm -hmm. so, um, and I, I, I'm aware of it and I'm like, this is a, this is a healthy way to do it. Like people make it seem like it's a bad thing. Like, oh, it's another mental health issue you have. Mm. But I'm like, I'm not going to label it anymore. It's like, this makes me feel good. And this is a healthy way for me to do it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, it's better than me drinking. It's better than me gambling. It's better than me doing all these other things that might harm me. Like my family actually doesn't mind having a really clean house either. So... <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your generosity on this call, Elaine. It's been wonderful to be in conversation with you. And I'm really looking forward to your next book. Do you have a sense of what might we be looking forward to? What, what are you working on? I am planning. So I wrote my first book in 29 days, 28 days in December 20, 2019. And so I plan to write my first draft of my second book in December. I don't know if I'll write it as quickly, but my goal is to set my December aside to write my second book, the first draft at least, um, because my goal is to have it published. If it's traditionally published, I'm crossing my fingers. I get picked up by a traditional publisher if that happens. 
then it probably won't happen until it won't be released until the end of 2022 because of traditional publishing takes longer. Um, and maybe not even till January 2023. Um, if this doesn't happen, then and I'm in charge of self-publishing, it will come out faster because I, I I have the ability to I know the process now. It won't be as painful as the first time. But um, my second book is going to be all about uh, self-determination and water teaching. Oh, that gives me chills. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Okay, well, best of luck with that. And I'll be thinking of you over the, the winter season, working away, bringing forth good medicine for the world. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Elaine. Thank you, Carmen. Hmm. That phrase, my body is not approving. I love that. That is a new way of framing my thoughts that I'm definitely going to integrate. Find Elaine's book wherever you like to buy them, but make sure you ask your local bookseller to stock it so others can discover this new friend and confidant among the pages. And then if you already have it, please leave a review on Amazon. You know, these things really do matter to authors. Find the show notes with links to Elaine's work, uh, also with Alder Hill and other topics we brought up in this show at numinouspodcast.com. So time for our listener shout out. Okay, so folks... For those of you following along, uh, let it be known that North Dakota is back with us, my friends. Two people in North Dakota have brought the state back into the numinous fold with new downloads this week. They, they must be catching up on past episodes in the archive or something. They're hanging tough there in an otherwise inhospitable environment. So sending much love and care to those two people in North Dakota. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. Um, also, though, uh, expanding the listener shout out this week, um, was I the only person who'd never heard of the Republic of Bashkortostan, also called Bashkiria? The Republic of Bashkiria. Just me? This is a republic, apparently, in Russia. A republic of Russia. It's located between the Volga and the Ural Mountains in Eastern Europe. So I had to look at the map. So um, three listeners in Bashkortostan. What? Okay, so picture this in your mind. So you've got Italy, Germany above it, and then you've got all those countries that end in Ia, right? Ch uh, Czechia, Austria, Croatia, Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania, Slovakia, all those places. Poland, Romania, those big ones. Now, kind of head up north. So just, there, there's Finland, then water, then we've got more EAs, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, okay? Kind of more or less oriented. Now we have Russia for as far as the eye can see. So Moscow is the next big major city moving east. Keep going east of Moscow to the point where it's starting to get to be like desert, Okay, so now we're above Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and those places. So we're like getting, yeah, it's like much drier, different climate. Just north of that, in this like vast expanse of Russia, the Republic of Bashkortostan, like three people have been downloading. What? This is amazing. So then I, of course, had to go down a rabbit hole learning about Bashkiria. Their language is called Bashkir 
or Bashkort, uh, but Russia is also spoken. I couldn't find any audio of uh, what hello was like in Bashkir, so I'll, I'll just say it in Russian. Privyet. Uh, Privyet to the three people in Bashkir or in Virens. You're blowing my mind. Thank you. This is so amazing. I feel like more connected with um, like the human spirit, even knowing you're out there and you've taught me to expand my mind. There's so much this planet I know nothing about. So, gosh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, lastly, friends, an update in case you've missed it or in case you're new to these parts. So I no longer sell my courses and workshops as individual offerings. This is important because there are many people who, you know, maybe take one or two workshops with me every year and have for a decade uh, who are like, oh, I see you're doing the Numinous Network, but I, you know, I just want to wait until you release registration for this one workshop. It's not happening anymore, my friends not selling courses or workshops as individual offerings. So here's the reason. During the pandemic, I saw that like most people were severely under-resourced with mental health supports and financial means. And so in response, I bundled all my offerings into one simple accessible price and it's less than half my hourly rate and it's less than you ever would have paid for a workshop with me by far. So the newest course that I've just added to the Numinous Network is my True Prosperity program. I know lots of you have been asking, when are you going to re-release that? So it's back online. The True Prosperity program is it's like a synthesis of all the methods I used to recover from my bankruptcy when my business was washed away in the Great Recession of 2008. Didn't know that? Yeah, it had. Why do I know so much about anxiety and depression? Aha, that's what it is. So this program incorporates uh hypnotherapy, somatics, also stoicism. Did you know that I spent a year uh, in counseling with uh, a counselor who also happened to be a stoic philosopher, capital S stoic? Yeah, before Ryan Halliday made it all like one minute stoic or stoic a day or whatever, all popular, I was doing it years ago. Um, Also, it includes rational emotive behavioral therapy, um, and also this really cool little guided journaling tool that I call the joy book. And we use the joy book every night for just a few minutes to process and resolve money, trauma, and anxiety. And it it takes about a month. So, and of course, I want to say, as with all my offerings, of course, we're recognizing the impacts of capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, patriarchy. Thank you, Bell Hooks, as we do this work. So, so it's nuanced, okay? So that is how you will access the True Prosperity Program is through the Numinous Network. It comes with your monthly membership. And also, once again, for those of you who are wondering, what about the Yuletide Stocking Stuffer? Changing the name so people kind of understand it better, but this holiday season, yes. Once again, I'll be doing my 12 days of Yuletide Folk Celebration. So it's daily micro-rituals and mini-meditations you can easily fit into your busy day and even do as a family. So it's good to end the year well. I'd love to do it together. The only place to find it is in the Numinous Network. So just join for like a month or two and binge on all my offerings over the holidays. It's like Netflix, but with more co-regulation. You'll find all the details at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.